you are able to stand in honor of the reading of the Lord's word. It's going to be Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We, ourse we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor, For though the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Caleb. And good morning, everyone. We continue our study this morning in the book of Galatians. And as you know, we've been in a sermon series on our mission and vision statements. So these statements are taken from the Great Commission, which instruct us to go and make disciples, to uh, teach them, to, to gather them into the church through, through baptism, to teach them to obey. And so we've talked about being a going church and a gathering church. And so for the final part, the, the teaching church, we're actually working our way through the book of Galatians to see how the apostles taught the church. But before we get into our text this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your holy, precious word. And we know that it is spiritually discerned. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. We pray that he will teach us, that he will convict us, and that he will use your word to mold us into the image of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. We pray in his name, amen. So as we have seen from our study, Paul planted churches in Galatia and elsewhere during his first missionary journey. Uh, but shortly after he arrives back to Antioch, he hears that the Galatians have been visited by false teachers. These false teachers are Judaizers. 
They teach that Gentiles must become Jews to be saved. They're adding to the gospel by saying that it is Christ plus circumcision which saves you. That to be part of the community of faith, you must keep the law of Moses. So Paul responds by writing this letter to the Galatians. And he says in this letter, he refutes the the false teachers in this letter. And by doing so, he guards the truth of the gospel. Galatians 1.6 through 2.10 are autobiographical in nature. Chapters 3 and beyond are primarily doctrinal. The text that we have this morning forms a bridge between these two sections. It moves us from the apologetic narrative to the theological argument. In our passage, Paul gives the thesis of the book, which is that no person is justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This passage was referred to often by the reformers as they taught justification by faith alone. We would do well to pay attention to it. This morning, we'll answer several questions. Why is Paul so upset with Peter? What's the big deal? Why does Paul include this story about Peter here in Galatians? What is the true gospel? How does this passage apply to the life of our church today? And finally, what can we learn from this text about how the apostles taught the church? From our text, we'll see Paul guard the truth of the gospel. In verses 11 through 14, we'll see the truth of the gospel defended. And then in verses 15 to 21, we'll see the truth of the gospel defined. First, Paul defends the truth of the gospel. In verses 11 through 14, we have what theologians refer to as the Antioch incident. As always, Context is important here. Last week, Pastor John took us through verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. Most likely, this corresponds to Acts 11, 29 and 30, which is Paul's famine relief visit to Jerusalem. Paul takes Titus with him. Titus is a Gentile, and Paul takes him as a test case. Will he have to be circumcised? Verse 3 says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. The right hand of fellowship is extended to them. James and uh, Peter and John all agree with Paul that his gospel is true. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. But when Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Uh, But there, it's in contrast to what happened in Jerusalem, where they all agreed to the message of the gospel, something very different happens when Peter comes to Antioch. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Our text makes it clear that at the church of Antioch, they were accustomed to eating meals together. 
This was at a time when many Jews did not eat with Gentiles or enter their homes. Some Jews even believed that if you touched the eating utensils used by Gentiles, that you were ceremonially unclean. It took a vision from God to prepare Peter to go into the home of a Gentile. Previously, in Acts 10, 28, Peter said to the Gentile Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The church in Antioch was perhaps one of the first churches consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. In some ways, Antioch was like a pilot project. Now, in business, if you want to test an idea, you'll do a pilot project. You, let's say you have a new product, and so you'll test it in a small market before rolling it out to a big market. Or you test a new manufacturing concept by doing it on a small scale before you build a factory. So Antioch was like a pilot project for Jewish-Gentile relationships in the early church. It was a mini version of something that would be rolled out later on a large scale. At Antioch, believers were not primarily Jews or Gentiles, but they were followers of Christ. A new term was coined. Acts 11.26 says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So when Peter first came to Antioch, he ate with the Gentile believers. Not only did he eat meals, but presumably he ate love feasts and the Lord's Supper with them. But then certain men came from James. Now, what was the relationship between James and these men? Did they accurately portray James's message, or were they name-dropping, seeking authority for their own position? Were they at the party of the circumcision, or just afraid of them? The text doesn't really make all of that clear, but what we can be sure of is that in Acts 11 and in Acts 15, James sides with those who insist that Gentile believers are not required to live under the Jewish law. At Jerusalem, Peter and Paul were in agreement on the gospel message. But at Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face. So why? What, what's the big deal? Why did Paul act so boldly towards this pillar of the church? Verse 11 says, Nothing less than the achievement of the gospel is at stake. It's no trifle. It's a chief article of the Christian faith. Yet the difference is not so much over the stated theology as much as the application of that theology. The reason I believe this comes later in verse 16. Paul states what everyone seems to agree with. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't think Peter changed his message. If we had heard him preach, he would have still preached about faith in Jesus. 
what happened was much more subtle. He changed his behavior. Peter's act signals that Gentile Christians are not truly and fully cleansed from sin, that they remain morally stained and must be avoided, that the only way Peter can eat with them is if they become Jews of the gospel. Peter has slipped into legalism. Now, the word legalism isn't used in the Bible, so it needs to be defined. I happen to like John Piper's definition. Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the ground of our acceptance with God, the ground of God being for us and not against us. Now, Peter would have never said, the ground of our acceptance with God is law-keeping, but he acted as if it were true. Legalism is so subtle. It's when that thought creeps in that makes us think that we had just a little bit to do with our salvation, or that we're more spiritual than someone else because of our law-keeping, that we're accepted by God because of what we do. But here's the thing about legalism. It's a different gospel, which is really no gospel, no good news at all. Because it says that Christ is not sufficient for salvation. That to be really spiritual, we need Christ plus something else. But if Christ is not sufficient for salvation, then we are all still lost. We're strangers to the covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. Legalism always claims to raise the bar, but it never, ever does. It says that you must add something to Christ, but adding anything to the eternal, divine, glorious work of Christ is lowering the bar. It would be like me adding a stick figure to a famous painting, like the Mona Lisa. I haven't made it better. I've ruined the masterpiece. So we'll circle back to application at the end, but for now, note the subtlety of legalism. It's insidious. Next, we must guard against the hypocrisy of legalism. Now, I'd like to talk to the children here for a minute. So kids, listen up. I want to explain the meaning of the word hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who says they believe one thing, but they do another. It's like someone who says everyone should share their toys, but they never share their own toys. What they say they believe and what they actually do are not the same thing. So let's look at verse 13 together. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Not only is Peter condemned for his actions, but he's hypocritical. He acts in contradiction to his convictions. 
He, he knows from the vision that he received in Acts 10 that no one should call any person common or unclean. In verses 1 through 10 of Galatians 2, he validates Paul's gospel, giving him the right hand of fellowship. He doesn't require Titus to be circumcised. But then Peter changes his behavior under pressure from the men sent by James. Because of Peter's reputation, other Jews join with him in this hypocrisy. In fact, so influential was was Peter's action that even Barnabas was led astray. Notice how Peter is singled out. Even though it was the men sent from James that instigated the problem, and Barnabas and all the Antioch Christians, the Jewish Christians, were complicit in it, Paul's focus is on Peter. Because Peter, of all people, should have known better. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here we see specifically how Paul confronts Peter. Before the coming of the men from James, Peter in a sense, lived like a Gentile. He ate with Gentiles, he had close contact with them, but then he withdraws from fellowship with the Gentile believers because they are Gentiles. He is, in effect, demanding that Gentile believers take up the law themselves and become Jews. So why does Paul include the Antioch incident here in Galatians? Well, it's possible that the Judaizers in Galatia were appealing to Peter's actions. His behavior certainly would have supported their position. But whether that's true or not, we can see that how the Antioch incident is a natural segue to the rest of the book. The central issue here in this story is whether Gentile Christians should be forced to become Jews and observe the Jewish law. This is exactly the issue that Paul's letter addresses. And so he's guarding the truth of the gospel. Twice in chapter 2, in, in verse 5 and then down in verse 14, Paul has referred to, quote, the truth of the gospel. But he hasn't really told us yet what that truth is. So in verses 15 to 21, Paul defines for us what he means by the truth of the gospel. In verses 15, 16, and 21, Paul tells us that justification is by faith alone. In verses 17 to 19, that works do not make us righteous. And in verse 20, he tells us how we are united with Christ. So the first thing he tells us about the truth of the gospel is that justification is by faith alone. Please look with me at verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one's. He's using the term, quote, Gentile sinners from the typical Jewish perspective. The Jews would have seen the, the Gentiles as sinners for not keeping the law. Paul begins verse 16 with, yet we know. So everyone, Peter, the Jewish Christians, even the Judaizers were not questioning the need for faith in Christ for justification. The dispute was whether works of the law should be added to the gospel. Justification that we talked about is uh, a legal term, and it concerns our relationship to God's law. No one, except Jesus, has ever kept God's law perfectly. In fact, that's the whole point of the law. It shows us our sin. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In Romans 7.7, 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law shows us our failing painfully demonstrates to us that no one can come to God by law-keeping. Far from making us righteous, the law only condemns us. It shows us that we are guilty and cannot stand before a holy God. We have no hope of redeeming ourselves. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made a way for us. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus died on the cross in our place. He was raised on the third day. That through repentance and faith, we trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Through faith, God justifies us. In the the great exchange, he exchanges our sin for the righteousness of Christ. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. In verse 16, Paul states twice that we are not justified by works of the law. Works of the law is any human effort to be justified by obeying the law. During the Reformation, This verse was frequently appealed to. The Roman Catholic Church said that justification was by faith plus the merits of the Roman Catholic Church. But verse 16 clearly teaches that we are justified by faith alone. Even today, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all false gospels based on good works. The gospel reveals that all people are sinners and therefore all equally in need of finding justification in Christ. Notice that Paul is not arguing that Gentiles should be included with Jews as the people of God. That's not his argument here. What Paul is saying in verse 16 is that Jews are sinners 
just like Gentiles. This has radical implications. Their obedience to the law cannot make them right with God. Only total reliance on Christ by faith can do so. Most Bible commentators believe that the last phrase of verse 16, by works of the law no one will be justified, is a reference to Psalm 143.2, which says, For no one living is righteous before you. This is the first of many of Paul's appeals to Scripture in Galatians to show that the Old Testament taught justification by faith, not justification by works. The idea that justification does not come by works of the law is also found in verse 21. The last statement of verse 16 and verse 21 bracket this entire section. They're like bookends. The last part of verse 16, by works of the law, no one will be justified, clearly states the underlying premise of verses 17 through 20. Then in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the to guard the doctrine of grace, if it were possible to be justified by the law, then Christ's death was of no purpose. We would not need the grace of God that's demonstrated through the cross. But since we cannot be justified through the law, nothing can save us but the grace of God. Next, in verses 17 to 19, Paul continues to define the truth of the gospel by telling us that works do not make us righteous. Please look with me at those verses. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What in the world is Paul saying here? (laughs) Please stay with me on this. Paul is saying that if you seek justification only in Christ, then the Judaizers would say that you're in the same category as Gentile sinners. You're eating with sinners and associating with them. But, Paul argues, if it is true that justification only in Christ makes you a worse sinner, then Christ serves sin. Now, Peter and the Jewish Christians would have found this blasphemous. It's unthinkable. Paul says, certainly not. Verse 18 gives the reason for Paul's rejection of the logic in verse 17. Jewish Christians are not sinful by seeking justification by faith alone, but if they try to rebuild the edifice of the law, which separates Jews from Gentiles, then they're turning themselves into transgressors. By reverting back to the law, they come under the law which they themselves cannot keep. It's not Christ who leads them into sin. They're doing that themselves. In verse 19, Paul says that he is in a totally new relationship to the law. He's experienced a reorientation of values that is so radical that it can only be compared to death and new life. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here, Paul asserts the paradox that it is the law itself which has led him to die to the law. Now, this statement would have been shocking to first century Jewish ears. Paul is saying that he could only live, truly live for God by dying to the law that God himself gave to his people. But verse 19 makes sense when we understand that no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. The law itself shows us this is impossible. I remember the first time I I read through the entire Bible in high school, and somewhere in the middle of Leviticus, I remember throwing up my hands and saying, there's no way anyone can do all of this. That is exactly Paul's point. The law cannot save because no one can properly keep the law. The law itself pronounced the sentence of death on Paul's old way of life, of seeking salvation through the law. Salvation cannot be attained by good works. Works do not make us righteous. Next, Paul defines the truth of the gospel by explaining that we are united to Christ. Verse 20 begins, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Our union with Christ impacts every aspect of our relationship with God, including our justification. We can be justified by Christ because we are united with him. We talked earlier about the the doctrine of justification. It's a legal term in which God declares us righteous. But how can God truthfully declare us to be righteous when we are unrighteous and imputes Christ's righteousness to us? We talked about the great exchange. This is possible because of our union with Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Wayne Grudem says, It is essential to the heart of the gospel to insist that God declares us to be just or righteous, not on the basis of our actual condition of righteousness or holiness, but rather on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, which he thinks of as belonging to us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's saying the old I died when Christ died. The old I, enslaved to sin and the law, has been done away with. It's now replaced by a new I, whose existence is determined by the indwelling Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who, do, who lives in me. Our union with Christ doesn't just impact the way we live, that the way we become a Christian life. It also impacts the way we live the Christian life. Paul goes on to speak of sanctification through our union with Christ. And the life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember the difference between justification and sanctification. 
Justification is where God declares us to be righteous. Sanctification is where we become more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. We don't become a Christian by faith, only to live the Christian life by works. We live the Christian life in exactly the same way we became a Christian, by grace, through faith. Christ now lives in you, believer. He directs and empowers you to trust God moment by moment. You are united to the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's talk about application and also what we can learn about how the apostles taught the church. I have five applications for the life of the church and five things that we can learn about how the apostles taught the church. First is application. Number one, beware of your motivation for good works. Do good works, yes, but watch your reason for doing them. We do good works out of gratitude to God, not to gain his acceptance. We stand before God because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of our own righteousness. Number two, if Peter fell into legalism, I may fall into legalism. We must be careful. Peter's legalism was syncretism with his culture. He acted in a culturally acceptable way, even a culturally expected way. But his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. We must beware of letting our culture set our standard of behavior rather than scripture. It's very subtle. Watch for legalism in how you view spiritual gifts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God gives us spiritual gifts based on his choice for the building up of the body of Christ. He gives us different spiritual gifts. But sometimes the thought creeps in that we're more spiritual than someone else because of the gifts that God gave us. Number four, watch for legalism in how you view caring for your health. As Christians, we know that our bodies are temp a temple of the Holy Spirit, and we all agree that a healthy lifestyle is good. But we may disagree on whether to eat this food or that food, or how aggressive to be with certain medical procedures. Now, the problem isn't that we have different viewpoints. The problem is when we see someone else as less spiritual because of their different opinions. Now, let me be clear, I'm talking about uh, things, I'm not talking about sin as clearly laid out in scripture, okay? I'm simply talking about honest differences of opinion between believers. Number five, watch for legalism in how you view politics. Now, hear me carefully on this. We have an amazing privilege in our country to be involved in politics. In fact, one of the ways that we can love our neighbor is by encouraging the enactment of, of good law. But if I break fellowship with a brother over his political views, 
I've made the same mistake as Peter in the Antioch incident. Politics or our view on health care, etc., are not the point of our fellowship. We fellowship with one another because of Jesus. We're family in Christ. Finally, let's talk about five things that stand out about how the apostles taught the church. First, Paul confronts Peter to his face. He doesn't gossip or go behind his back. He's straightforward with the issue. Second, notice the graciousness of the confrontation. The first thing out of Peter's mouth wasn't, Peter, you're a hypocrite. Paul starts with a question, not an accusation. He doesn't assume the worst. He doesn't assume that Peter had thrown out the doctrine of justification by faith. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. He assumes the best where he can. Third, Paul's focus and energy is on defending the truth of the gospel. This is a first-tier issue having to do with salvation. He isn't sidetracked by lesser issues. He lets them go. But he is vigorous in his defense of the gospel. Fourth, Paul teaches with applicable real-life examples. He uses the Antioch incident to bring his point home. The central issue of the story is exactly the same issue that Paul's letter addresses. So in the same way, our expositional preaching doesn't stop with doctrine. We need to apply the message to the life of the church. Fifth and last, Paul teaches by appealing to the Old Testament scripture, referencing Psalm 100 in God's word. This morning we saw Paul defend the truth of the gospel in the Antioch incident. We saw how easy it is to slip into legalism. We must stand guard against it. It's both subtle and hypocritical. We also saw Paul define the truth of the gospel. We saw how justification is by faith alone. It isn't what we do that makes us righteous, but through our union with Christ, God sees the righteousness of Christ and declares us to be not guilty. May our hearts be overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to beware of the spirit of legalism in our own lives. Let us have hearts that overflow with thanksgiving because of your mercy. Let us be stunned by your grace. Let us be blown away every day of our lives that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May the truth of the gospel fill us with amazement, we pray. Amen.